and welcome to episode number 33 of the Rock and Roll Research Podcast, where we share the super cool backstories and side gigs of the research and insights pros that you trust. Today's guest, Joel Rubinson, hardly needs an introduction. He has long been a change agent when it comes to the practice of marketing and marketing research. And his current company uh, that he founded about 10 or so years ago, Rubinson Partners, He's led critical client engagements and topics like multi-source global brand tracking, cross-media optimization, market mix modeling, uh, and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, he's also an adjunct professor at NYU where he created the first MBA course on social media for brand managers. Before that, he was actually the chief research officer at the Advertising Research Foundation, the ARF, and his list of accomplishments and contributions to the industry go on and on and on. But what I really want to talk to Joel about today is his decades-long parallel career as a musician, playing bluegrass and rock and roll with lots of guys and gals, including uh, another notable market researcher. And Joel is here to tell you all about that today. So welcome to the podcast, Joel. Oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> I just have to make sure the family knows that I'm, I'm being recorded. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot, Matt. Nice talking with you. Yeah, yeah. Super excited to have you on and uh, lots of good stuff to talk about today. So let's start with, with how you got into the business of market research in the first place. How, how, did, how did that go down? Okay. Um, well, I was one of the few students at the University of Chicago uh, MBA program, who didn't like finance. So <laughs> I, w I went to the University of Chicago because I was very attracted to the uh, Nobel Prize winners who taught there in economics. So yep. I took classes under Milton Friedman, George Stigler. It was it was great, you know. And so, you know, but then I decided, well, so I'm, I'm, I have a concentration in economics, a concentration in statistics but I don't want to be an economist and I don't want to be a statistician. So what do I do? I didn't like finance, but I did like marketing. So right. I told, I told myself that's the career path I want to go on. My first couple of jobs didn't quite hit the mark, but uh, my uh, third job uh, after college was at Unilever. And uh, that was really fantastic. I mean, uh, the person who was the head of the department, Bill Moran, was like one of the thought leaders in the industry. And uh, uh, I don't know, maybe I'll even tell you one of my secrets was Bill was, he was, it wasn't that accessible, but he was right. very motivated. So I, I knew his schedule. I knew how late he stayed and I knew uh, when he would go to the bathroom. So there were two, <laughs> two urinals. <laughs> <laughs> so I would kind of follow him into the bathroom so I could get a few minutes of, uh, you know, of wisdom as we were talking. And then we developed a great relationship uh, on economics and, uh, you know, modeling, marketing, great relationship. And then, uh, you know, it, it, it just kind of taught me how to think about marketing. I just somehow got it. You know, there was like something that clicked for me and uh and that was really the start of my career and uh i kind of went on from there so that's how i got into it it's always a little serendipitous i think in marketing research you know yeah how so well there aren't really too many like formal marketing research programs yeah right 
you know, certifications and things like that, where it's, it's not like becoming a doctor where, you know, or a lawyer, we have to study for X years through a, a regimented program, take certification exams and things. So uh, I think people come into marketing research from core disciplines and they, they just find it in different ways, you know, and you, you can get people in a room in mar a marketing research department when, you know, someone like me came from an economics background, somebody else came from a psych background. Right. Uh, I had a guy work for me who was a great advanced analytics guy, you know, great with math and all kinds of stuff. Uh -huh. His background was philosophy, you know, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from an Ivy League school. But I mean, you know, he didn't he didn't study anything relating to marketing. So you just kind of so he wound up going into it through agencies, you know. This, right. Yeah. You know, and so people get into this profession in, in different ways. And I'd say now, I, I mean, I'm still kind of like, like I, I'm from Brooklyn, even though I don't live in Brooklyn. I'm from marketing research, even though I'm not sure I still live in marketing research because I do so much with, you know, digital marketing and big data and stuff like that. But, you know, those, those genes are still in me. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, speaking of serendipitous, uh, somehow you also found your way uh, as, as a musician. So tell us about how that, that came about. Okay. Well, uh, so my, my journey into music started really with uh, bumming around South for a couple of weeks with friends. And we went to this fantastic club in Nashville and, uh, you know, I got so jazzed up about playing music. I had never played an instrument, but I love, singing and whatever so you okay. know so that that club was very motivating and then after Nashville we went on to New Orleans and then we went to like Preservation Hall and and you know so that like sealed the deal I had to I had to get into music and um uh so I started out singing and playing guitar mm -hmm. and uh and then in the 90s, I was in a, like a coffee house band. Everybody's playing guitar. So I said, I got to add some variety. Yeah. So my father used to play harmonica. And although he passed away before the coffee house band, I was attracted to it, but I never got the hang of it. Mm -hmm. And then somehow I just decided to pick it up again, give it another try. And it clicked. You know, you just because, yeah. you know, like when you play guitar, you can look at the strings, right? When you play harmonica, you can't look at the holes. They're in your mouth. So right. Right. you just, there's something has to click. And, and it did for me. So that got me into that. And then um, then a bunch of us were musicians at NPD. We formed a band called the Outliers, like Statistical Outliers. Uh, and nice. uh, <laughs> we've been playing together for 25 years or more. And then uh, in the early 2000s, my optician was a bass player in a Rolling Stones tribute band. Oh, okay. And okay. He, knowing I played harmonica and how important harmonica is to the Stones, he recruited me into that band. So cool. I started playing with them in 2003 or 2004. So, uh, you know, before COVID, I was probably playing 40 gigs a year. Yeah. 40 gigs a year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's that's a lot uh, when you're also um, I mean, you're quite prolific when it comes to authoring blogs and papers and things like that. 
Yeah. Why do you keep all sleep, that together? Sleep optional. <laughs> sleep optional. <laughs> sleep optional. Yeah. Hey, it's priorities, man. It's priorities. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's great. So what, what is your favorite kind of stuff to play? Well, uh, so definitely harmonica is my best interest instrument. It's what I really, I think, uh, you know, if, if I'm doing a gig or whatever, I, that's what I stand out with. And uh, uh, so I'd say my very favorite thing of all would be playing Midnight Rambler with the Stones tribute band that I play in. So, oh, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah, so blues, I'd say blues harp, you know, is my favorite thing. And uh, I like going to jams, mm -hmm. you know, because you let the music take you somewhere. You just find a find a groove, get in a pocket and go, you know. So I love that. And, uh, you know, I go to blues jams. I, I sing and play harp, you know, do both of those things. So I'd say those are my favorite things. But, you know, you're wearing a Johnny Cash shirt and we were just <laughs> discussing, and I love country and I love Johnny Cash. I mean, Sun Studios is like it for oh, me. Mecca. When I went, when I went to, when I went to Memphis, uh, you know, it was, I had it in between meetings. It was, I went for business, but in between meetings, I had to go to Sun Studios. It was like a religious experience yeah and have you ever have you ever you've been to sun studios right i i have the, the tour okay. it's just it's fantastic the yeah. the acoustics i don't know if they knew what the hell they were doing but i can tell you the acoustics where they do the recording unbelievable yeah, yeah. i mean it's like better than the best digital effects you could imagine you know yeah. so uh anyway it was it was it was a religious experience yeah um, I mean, it still looks like a, a 70 year old recording studio as well it looks like a yeah and, but it's but it's an active studio right yeah yeah like didn't yeah, you two record an album there or, you yeah. know so yeah it's yep. really an amazing place yeah yeah cool so so you've had these two these two things in parallel for decades um are there any lessons you draw from like music that you apply to your professional life or vice versa? Uh, or are they just two totally separate tracks? You know, well, they're certainly separate, but you know, you always pull from one life experience and into another, you know? And, uh, and so I try not to like talk business when, when I'm playing music, mm -hmm. you know, I want to keep it to music. Um, but sometimes business intersects and then other times it's just, you know, it's just a lesson about playing nicely with others too, you yeah. know, like you have to, you have to be a team player in life. You have to be the kind of person someone wants to play with, someone wants to work with, mm -hmm. or in either case, they'll find a way to, you know, to avoid you. So, you know, you, when I started out, I would say, uh, in, in music and maybe in business too, you know, I have, have a strong ego and, you know, sometimes you want to have it fed and I, it doesn't work very well. So yeah. <laughs> I've kind of moved on from, from thinking that way, but uh, uh, no, you know, music is um, it's, it, it teaches you discipline structure, yeah. how to be a team player. You know, if I was, singing and playing guitar by myself, it, I wouldn't get nearly the attention or whatever versus, yeah. uh, you know, being with, with a great band. Yeah. And, uh, 
I will to say one funny thing that happened. So for eight years, I was playing with the Rolling Stones tribute band, never discussed business, right? Right. One night in between sets, the lead singer, Mick Jagger, quote unquote, right? Does a great Mick Jagger, by the way, starts talking with me. He says, you're in marketing, right? I said, uh, I said, yeah. I said, and I started telling him a little bit about what I do. I said, you know, Pete, I never really understood what you do. Well, it turns out he was the managing director of a uh, technology bar, you know, value-add reseller. Okay. And uh, they have clients like Bloomberg. I mean, you know, pretty big oh, stuff, right? Yeah. So he, but he managed, anyway, they were getting into big data and they realized that a lot of times it's the marketing organization, the CMO who makes big data, uh, IT-based decisions, right? Right. They said, we don't know anything about marketing. Maybe you could help us. So... <laughs> So I like to tell people I made a lot of money at music. <laughs> it's a recruiting. I mean, because I wound up being a consultant to his firm, actually. Free drink tickets and a $100,000 contract. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, kind of along those lines, right? <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Okay, so let's, let's, uh, let's go back to the, the work side then again. Mm -hmm. um, you, you've always been... Uh, I would say actually contrarian. I've, I've liked a lot of what you've written. Oftentimes it, it um, challenges the conventional wisdom of marketing and marketing research. Um, so what's, what's your take on, um, you know, when we have big data, we have social media, we have all these sources, just what's, what does the future kind of look like from where you're sitting for research and marketing? Big yeah. question. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, no, that's, that's, that is a big question. And yeah, I would say, am I a contrarian? Um, maybe. I like to think that I'm an agent of change who's willing to express an opinion that he knows will be met with resistance. Mm -hmm. But I do it anyway. Right. You know? And... Uh, so I, I don't say things just to be a curmudgeon or whatever, but I do have maybe a, a little more lean forward way of looking at things sometimes. And uh, I mean, you have to, you have to go for it. Like I, I, I was, uh, uh, I was invited into this invitation only event at Wharton, uh, which was the future of advertising is what it was called. Okay. Uh, by, organized by Professor Jerry Wind. And so you have research directors from everywhere and leading professors and in this group of 50, 60 people, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, at one point I started, and this was really before the rise of programmatic advertising. Okay. But I started to talk about how I thought the science of advertising as it related to media might be more important than creative and, and one of the reasons I said that is because if you get it right, based on the math of placing advertising, mm -hmm. it's repeatable success. Whereas if you get it right in terms of creative, it's lightning in a bottle, you know? And right. it's like everybody at that conference was talking about the old spice man on a horse thing. Right. And, you know, you realized the reason why everybody was referring to the same campaign is because that's the only one like that. No, if you knew how to create it, everybody would create their version yeah. of it. But it's the, the, you know, so you have that and you have like to teach the world to sing. 
yep. and Excedrin Hedwig. I mean, it's great creative is like lightning in a bottle. Of course, you have right. to strive for it, but great media strategy based on math is reproducible. So anyway, the uh, uh, at the time, I had a, a very big consulting uh, gig with Coca-Cola to help them redesign their uh, global tracker. Mm -hmm. And uh, Stan Stan and Nathan, who's the, the global head of research, who actually brought me in to Coke to do this, right? Right. He pulled me aside after I said this, and he, he said during the break, he said to me, what are you saying, man? <laughs> <laughs> Well, at the time, I didn't know to articulate, you know, that it was programmatic and addressable marketing. And, and most recently in October, we introduced a whole new brand growth framework that uh, uh, is proven to deliver 50% increase in ROAS, return on ad spend. And it's based on targeting a segment we identified called the movable middle, which has five times the ad response. And that relationship actually comes from math. It comes from calculus. So I won't go into all the details, but the point is that is reproducible success. So I guess six years ago, whenever that happened, you know, I was right, but I didn't quite know how it was going to materialize yet. And so it's not that creative isn't important. It's just that it's one of, you know, four or five factors that are of equal importance. And when you get them all right, you know, then it's like hitting a 500 foot home run, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, but if you don't get the targeting part of it right and the media strategy parts of it right, you know, then the creative will, uh, it'll, it'll still allow to, for the campaign to do better, yep. but not as good as it could have been. So there's a lot more I could say about that, but I'm sure that's not what you want to dig deep into <laughs> today. So, you know. Yeah. No, uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, long before we met, uh, I've I've been a, an admirer of of your writing. <laughs> Thank uh, you. And you mentioned leading brand track brand tracking at uh, Coca Cola at the time. I was running a tracker for a large global consumer goods firm for uh, a notable supplier, and I saw the stuff that you were writing. And uh, in one sense, it made me super excited about the yeah. future of what brand tracking could be, but it also made me pretty nervous about what we were doing at the time. Well, you know, good, <laughs> good. That's, that's the idea. You know, one of my favorite quotes comes from uh, a writer, H.L. Mencken, mm -hmm. in the 20s, who was at the Baltimore Sun, I believe. And he said his mission was to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. <laughs> so, That's you know, true. yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I yeah. think it's great if people who are running large tracker programs, if something I said made them think again about, you know, the stuff they don't otherwise think about. You, you know, listen, in marketing research, when you're running a business, a marketing research business, you always want to try and productize things. Right. Right. So when you productize things, you try and standardize things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you standardize things, it, it doesn't allow the business model doesn't allow for a lot of customization and, you know, really original kind of thought because you're, you're kind of breaking the profitability model. Now, some people do it. I, I would do it often. And, you know, uh, maybe others would as well. But but if you can get people to think you know, with, with uh, a fresh perspective about mm -hmm. something, you know, uh, 
I, I was consulting with one of the large research firms, I don't know, five years ago, whatever, to help them redesign their tracking program. And, you know, so I looked at their tracking program and, you know, it was perfectly competent. Right. It was a, like a tracker should be, and so many are, you know, you had the yeah. awareness questions and all that kind of stuff. But you know what? The, the tracker, there was no integration of survey information with digital information. Right. There was no attempt to find the, the intersecting truth from the survey data with social media, with, with digital, yeah. uh, you know, exhaust information. There was nothing in there about shopping. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, awareness and preference and whatever, it kind of follows the, the, uh, the funnel, right? Yeah. Yep. But I like to think also in terms of journeys, yep. especially exactly. in digital. People go through behaviors that have a, you know, it has a rhyme and a reason to it. It's chaotic sometimes because you see a link, you click it, and you go somewhere you didn't think you were going to go. But there still is a pattern to it. You know, you start with search and, you know, you might start generically or you might start branded depending on how strong your brand preferences are. There's, there's a pattern to yeah. the chaos, you know? And, and so um, that should be included in, in tracking programs. And, yeah. uh, you know, when I've consulted with marketers directly or with this research firm, you know, I tried to include some of these elements. Now, of course, you you can't go from zero to sixty in two seconds, right? Right. So, you know, you have to you have to you have to stage things. But uh, yeah, but I feel you know I, I I'm gratified that the direct work I do is well received. But also, you know, we had never you know we had never actually met before this, right? And yeah. so you know, but to hear that I had some impact on your thinking and about how you approached your relationships. It's actually like really, really gratifying to me. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, you know, yeah, I appreciate yeah, it. So, so that leads me to the next question, which is what, what kinds of media or maybe uh, personalities, uh, podcast blogs, uh, do you look to for inspiration or even enjoyment? Well, uh, Okay, that's a very interesting question uh, for a variety of reasons. First of all, I happen to really love what I do. <laughs> I mean, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a baseball player, right? Yeah. Love baseball, love watching it, and I love playing it. I was on NYU's team. I was a pitcher a long, long time ago. Oh, cool. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and then I was working out with a scout for Cincinnati. But the problem is... These guys have such pinpoint control. All I could do is try and throw a strike. Yeah. So, you know, I had a really, really good fastball, but I didn't always know where it was going to go. Right. And it turned out that's a metaphor for me, for my business. That's <laughs> Joel again, really good fastball, but who knows where it's going to go. <laughs> uh, so anyway, okay, now I forgot the question. <laughs> what did you ask me? What do you turn to for instance? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I love what I do. And in the past uh, year and a half, I tried to turn COVID into a real uh, opportunity. 
So I said, okay, I'm stuck at home. I mean, I, normally I work from home anyway, but I would go into the city or I get on planes, I visit clients, but I'm, okay, I'm home. I can't go anywhere. What am I going to do? And I happened to pick up an assignment from an ad tech firm okay. that had a, a lot of data scientists. They were kind of in startup mode with uh, capital behind them. Okay. They had data scientists, but the data scientists are not necessarily statisticians and they don't necessarily understand marketing. So they retained me to have me help structure the team and their approach to uh, what it, what they were doing in finalizing their offer and then to write a white paper off of it. Okay. And so, um, so that was great. But what happens is if you don't say anything, people always assume your skills are maybe a little bit broader and more current than they actually are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So when I looked at what these people were doing and there were, you know, big data elements to it and Bayesian elements and wisdom of crowd stuff and whatever, I really started to dig back into the books and into videos of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, I've done things in the past year and a half Hey, I'm not, I'm not close to school age anymore, but I've done things over the past year and a half that are employing advanced math stuff that I had never even used before because it's just, that's where the assignments took me. That's where my thinking took me. Yeah. And uh, so to answer your question, um, I, I like reading uh, the medium uh, blogs and newsletters. Yeah. So I focus yeah. on the data science stuff a lot. Uh, I'll find YouTube videos that reinforce that. I um, I subscribe to uh, Great Courses Plus, which actually has some really good stuff on, you know, like linear algebra and Bayesian stats and things like that. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the stat courses there, everything is about, you know, going through the principles, and now here's how you do it in R. So I've used R and Python in the past year and a half much more than I ever did before. I used to use SPSS and there's nothing wrong with it, but you know, I'm a consultant on my own. That's kind of expensive. And you know, so all of a sudden seeing you can do virtually anything in R that you want to do, you know, I, I kind of switched over. Um, So that's, that's largely, you know, and then I get, uh, uh, you know, emails uh, from media posts, you know, the trade journal stuff, ad age and whatever. Mm -hmm. I look at quirks, which comes to me in the mail and comes Mm -hmm. to me in in email. But um, I would say I don't like follow too many blogs or in terms of books, um, uh, you know, books that had uh, some big impact on me would be, um, well, of course, Moneyball. Everyone has to say Moneyball, yeah. right? You know, yeah. but it really, but I, I actually did stuff that was sabermetrics like when I was uh, at the University of Chicago before yeah. anyone ever heard of Bill James. I just yeah. didn't know you could actually make a living at it. <laughs> yeah. I might not have gone into marketing research if I knew you could, because I actually built there's something in sabermetrics called the wins above replacement, yep. which is like the key metric. That was actually the basis oh, of my paper oh. in 1972 when I was in college. Uh, it was the basis of the paper was oh, that. That's so cool. Yeah. And no one had ever heard of Bill. I just didn't ever think you'd make money. I was just 
yeah. saying, okay, I got to do a, a term paper in stat and hey, baseball statistics are all available. So let me go for that. Um, so there's that, you know, so, and then occasionally uh, books will, will come by me like one that was on, you know, how the whole digital advertising world was evolving. It was mm -hmm. great. And, uh, you know, the on the, the onset of programmatic. So I kind of, you know, I read articles, I read the book, I got it, you know, and I'll look for advanced math stuff. And now that I've been practitioner for so long, I see the applicability of this. Like I yeah. never had a clue other than factor analysis kinds of stuff. What do you use an eigenvector for? Yeah. You know, now I have all these applications that I've actually built that use that uh, eigenvector decomposition of of large matrices uh for you know other kinds of stuff that i never studied in college yeah you know back then it was always like blocks on springs and predicting motion and stuff like that so right. now it's relevant to me because i have i have uh use cases in mind so yeah. um anyway so that that's you know so that's a long-winded answer, but uh, you know, I I don't have anything really habitual. I, I get to Google alerts on topics that are important to me where I have assignments yeah. like multi-touch attribution. But uh, I'm open to suggestions, by the way. If you have. <laughs> well, I I think it's I think it's really fascinating that, uh, like you said, you've used this time to actually continue to uh, evolve your learning uh, on your core business and just keep pushing the envelope and, yeah. um, you know, adding, adding more perspectives to, to the work that you could do. Yeah. So and part of the trick is take on assignments that make you uncomfortable. Right. Because if everything you do is completely comfortable, yeah, it's going to get pretty boring. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so, you get stagnant in a fast moving world too. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think about, you know, where I was, like when I was the chief research officer at the NPD group, uh -huh. you know, and the models I built back then and, and whatever, I think about those and, uh, you know, the stuff I do now, I, I'm not sure that the Joel of 2002 or whatever would even understand easily what I'm working on now. Right. But the digital world was, you know, people were still looking at digital like it was linear TV. Yeah, right. And I was like, what's the ratings of this website, that website, <laughs> yeah. and, you know? Someone, went, I once heard a professor talk about innovation, and he says, people always think of new technology in the context of old technology first. Yeah. yeah. And he, he made the point that it was 15 years before someone, from the advent of movies, before someone thought to shoot a close-up. <laughs> Wow. And the reason for it was it was just a play. Right. It was yeah. a play on film. Well, you don't have close-ups when you're watching plays, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, so anyway. So, but I love uh trying to to find those transformations. Um and and not just for transformation's sake, because it's adding, you know, ed economic or commercial value. So right. Anyway. Yep, that's no, great. Great way to look at it. Okay, now the all important question, Joel. So you're a musician, right? Yeah. Uh, you've got you've got musical passions. Yeah. Uh, so so let's say let's say 
you're stranded on a desert island, right? <laughs> okay. Um, someone has granted you three records of your choice to keep you company the rest of your days. What are those records? Okay. So the first two, I know exactly what I'm going to say. All right. The third one is like a 20-way tie. <laughs> so uh, the first, I'll so I'll tell you what I chose is my third one, but I want to mention some of the alternates. Okay. Oh, okay, but, so, I, but I'm still going to hold you to the three. So the other. Okay, so here, here's the three. Okay, I got three. Here's the three. Right. Uh, number one, uh, the band Brown album, ah, the one that had Jemima Surrender and Night They Drove Old Dixie Down and uh, Cripple Creek, which was one of, like one of my favorite songs of all time. So the band. Yeah. That's number one. Great. Okay. Number two would be what I think is the greatest bluegrass album of all time, which is Old and in the Way, which started as a side project for Jerry Garcia. Right, right. Playing banjo on this, you know, and yeah. he's just and he pulled together these unbelievable musicians. Vassar Clements, who's like, you know, a, a, a jazz genius on violin or fiddle. Yeah. Brought into bluegrass music. And in fact, the greatest uh, lead break I've ever heard doesn't come from Clapton or whomever. It comes from Vassar Clements on the song Midnight Moonlight on that album. Oh, cool. so, anyway, so that's number two. I got to okay. that one. Okay, yep. What's number the three is uh, the first Paul Butterfield blues band album uh, I ever got. And I choose that one because, listen, I play blues harp. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what I love to do when I'm on stage and I can, you know, play some amazing lead breaks and, and see the reaction of people. So I gotta, I gotta pick Blues Harp album. Sure. There's a lot of great ones, but I guess I'll go with Paul Butterfield. Um, okay. So that's it. Now, so those are my three. All right. But what I'm really sad that I didn't have room on the island for <laughs> would be uh, a Willie Nelson's Redheaded Stranger. Nice, nice, yes. Which absolutely. is a Western told in audio form. I mean, it's an amazing thing. Uh, I'd pick, well, you're sure, Johnny Cash. I'd pick Johnny Cash's Grammy award-winning uh, Unchained album. Yeah, um, fantastic. Unbelievable. And, uh, you know, and there's just two others that I really would love on my island if the island was a little bigger. Sticky Fingers, which I think is by far like that the best sense. Stones album of all yeah. time. And one of the best albums, period. And uh, and the other thing is, I would love something by Chris Stapleton, who was so oh. transformative to music. Yeah. And uh, I probably would pick Traveler, you know, his yeah. first album that won all the awards, the Grammys and the Country Music Awards and everything. But he's just, uh, he, he has invented music in a way that uh, defies uh, definition. Yeah. So I don't know yeah. how much you know about Chris Stapleton, but he's, he's truly amazing. So anyway, so that, that's, my, that's my desert island. If I have time, by the way, I have a desert island joke to tell you. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I told I'm you, refuse. <laughs> okay. So I told you that... Um, um, you know, I, I, my MBA is in economics, right? Right. Okay. So a physicist, a chemist, and an economist are stranded on a desert island. Okay. It's shipwreck and they get stranded. Okay. And the only thing that washes ashore is a can of food and matches that miraculously stay dry. 
right? But no okay. can opener, okay? Yeah. So the chemist says, okay, this isn't bad. We can start a fire and I can, and we put the can on, on the fire and I could tell you how long it's gonna be before the can explodes. Okay. And the physicist says, okay, and I can tell you from the angle of the can sitting in the fire and the amount of pressure, I can predict the trajectory so I know where to be so we can catch the food, you know, as it explodes before it hits the ground. Okay. And the economist says, well, let's assume we have a can opener. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that, that so is, I just I had to share that. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> now that's that is a first on the podcast is the Desert Island joke. So I uh, thank you for that one. <laughs> okay. Well, good. I'm glad. I like to be uh, revolutionary. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, this well, has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Super fun conversation, Joel. Really appreciate your time. Uh, really appreciate you sharing some of your wisdom and your stories along the way and rock and roll. <laughs> Here we go. Yes, <laughs> you got it. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Joel. Thank